morning, New Life. What a great couple of days of weather we've had here. We can tell that spring is around the corner, that glorious 10 days in upstate New York where we have actual weather that's not super hot or six feet of snow on the ground. It is coming. We're in, we're in fake spring now, and spring will come. But before we get there, we are definitely going to have to go through some more cold and some more snow. I think everybody who has lived in New York knows that this is coming. But something else is coming, of course, in two weeks. It's Easter, right? And the, the, the empty tomb is discovered, and, and we see that Jesus has overcome the grave, and the, the glorious day of Easter morning is coming. And uh, unfortunately, before we get there, we're going to have to go through Good Friday. And that's what I'd like to talk to you today about. Essentially, I'm going to be talking about the last 12 hours or so of Jesus' life. From arrest to death is what I'm calling it. Now, I'd like you to do something, if you don't mind. If you have a pencil and a piece of paper, this isn't a test. I'm not actually going to check if you actually do this because you can do this in your mind as well. There's a little exercise I went through when I was preparing for this message, and what I did was like a word association, right? You've seen that before where you see a word and then you have to jot down all the things that come to mind. And when I was preparing for this message, I said, you know, what do I think when I, when I try to think about Good Friday? From the arrest in the garden to when Jesus breathes his last on the cross. And I took about 30 seconds, and I came up just, just whatever came to mind, I sort of jotted down. And if you would like to do that this morning, uh, I can't actually see far enough to see if I can get 30 seconds on there. Uh, and I didn't bring my phone up. So Der- Derek, can you give me a timer when I say go for 30 seconds? And then when you're, just raise your hand, and I'll let everybody know 30 seconds is up. All right, so let's do that. So in your, in your mind, you don't have to write it down. You can use your phone or whatever. 30 seconds. What comes to mind when I say Good Friday, from arrest to death, and go. I'll share you with my list. We don't have to, I don't want to make this too difficult. We don't have to actually participate. So I'll share my list. When I went through this, things that came to mind just off the top of my head, I had praying in the garden, cutting off an ear, Pontius Pilate, crown of thorns, rooster crowing, Barabbas, Simon of Cyrene, scourging, nails, a repentant thief, Father, forgive them, the temple curtain, and the cross. Now, you may have had some of the same things. You may have had different things. And as I was thinking about this, I thought, you know, I generally, I enjoy history. I I like history. And this is a historical story, but I don't think we always relate to this last day of Jesus' life as history. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that we have an emotional connection to the things that happen. Being Christians, we have that background, that thought process. Jesus is our Lord. So whatever our emotional connection to this story is kind of highlights what we think about this time period. And I've shared with you before you know, I, like, I would view myself as somebody like Peter in the garden when they come to arrest Jesus. I would like to think of myself as I'd be brave enough to cut off people's ears and fight, right? So for me, like, that's what comes to mind when I think of what happened in the garden. But there's so much more. And if you're like me, and I, I need a lot of forgiveness, so I associate with 
that thief on the cross who is forgiven by Jesus in the last moments of his life. And those are the things that sort of come to my mind. And we don't always think about these Good Friday as history. We don't think of it like we think of Prohibition or D-Day or any of the other events that are historical. The second reason for that is that when we have, look at the four Gospels, they're not written the same way history is written today. It's not strictly a who, what, when, where, why, how narrative that we would think of if we opened a history book and we started reading. But if we harmonize the Gospels, if we take each story that is a little bit different, so for example, they, they differ in the story of how J Judas ends his life. Now, it's not troublesome to us. We just, we can work through it, and there's a, a Bible teacher named Steve Gregg who gives this a thorough treatment. The order of the things is kind of complicated. Depending upon your, how you read it, you might think there were two trials before the Sanhedrin or one, but all of those things don't change the theology or don't change the story. First century historians were more interested in telling what happened as opposed to how many soldiers were there, who, what, when. Like, they wanted the story to be able to be communicated verbally from one person to another because most people couldn't read. Their, their intention was to tell the story first, get it all out, the main points, and not like we would with footnotes and everything that we would think of as a history book. But I'm going to suggest that we can actually do that with our history on Good Friday. And when we do that, not only is the history sound, our theology is sound, and our faith is sound. They all mix together, and they give us a solid foundation upon which we base our belief. Now, for these sections I'm going to be in, I'm going to bounce back and forth between them. I won't always highlight when I'm from one to the other, but as I go through the story, what I'm going to try to do is point out the historical things that we know for sure, and then I'm going to look at some of the it's the wrong word because there are no throwaway lines in the Bible. But I call them sort of throwaway lines. You see a passage every once in a while, and you're like, Geez, well, that doesn't make any sense at all. Like, why did they say that? And like I said, I know it's not the right term, but that's kind of how I describe them. We're going to see a couple of those things as we go from arrest to death, and we'll explain sort of what they mean, or we'll see where in the Bible they sort of come together and form a solid base for us. So I'm going to be in Matthew 26, 36 to 27, 50. Mark 14, 32 to 15, 37. Luke 22, 40 to 23, 46. And John 18, 1 to 19, 30. All four Gospels tell this same story. Again, uh, some of them leave out certain things. For example, there's a trial before Annas, who was the high priest or one of the high priests at the time. Only John tells us that. The other three don't even mention Annas, but we'll, we'll explain why that's the case, and we'll, we'll understand this story that most of you know. I'm sure you all know the story of the last few hours of Jesus' life. So let's talk about the arrest. Where, is, where does this happen? It's the Garden of Gethsemane or the Mount of Olives, depending upon which translation you use or, or which gospel you're in. It's the same place. There's no, there's no contradiction between where this happened. It's just called two different things. And it's outside the city walls, across the Kidron Valley, which is about a 200-foot drop, as I understand it. Uh, Jesus and his disciples, after Last Supper, would have to leave the city, drop down into the valley, and then start on their way up on the other side. They would come to the Garden of Gethsemane, 
And it's important because where this happens is a place where Jesus often went to pray, we're told. And it seems strange, like, why couldn't they just have arrested Jesus anytime, anywhere? And if you look through the Bible, you understand, first of all, Jesus tells us that, you know, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't lay his head in any one particular place. He may have been difficult to find. Even his disciples, just a few hours earlier before this, he tells Peter and John, hey, go make preparations. And they say, well, where are we having dinner? He said, oh, go find some person carrying a water jar and go to that place. Like, how could you ever plan to find where Jesus was if that's how he sort of operated? And, of course, they tried to capture him before, and he escaped. They had tried to kill him before Jesus had escaped. So Jesus is not exactly uh, keeping a schedule that he's going to be at this place at this time, this place at this time, and he's just moving around. But Judas knows He's gone to the Garden of Gethsemane often to pray with his disciples so I can go find him there. And he leaves at the Last Supper. He's dismissed by Jesus to go do what he has to do. And he ends up coming with this crowd of soldiers. So what happens? They're in the garden. Jesus says, hey, stay awake and watch. The hour is at hand. They're coming for me. Stay awake. And they can't do it. Even Peter, John, and James who are brought further into the garden, they can't stay awake and be on guard. We would assume it has to be late at night or, you know, you've all had a large meal. They're probably tired afterwards. And they just, they don't understand what's coming, but Jesus does. And he starts praying. And of course, Jesus being fully human and fully God, he also has the same emotions that we do. And you've been anxious and I've been anxious about something that is coming. We know something bad is coming. But I've never sweat great drops of blood. I've never been that anxious. There haven't been hundreds of people coming to arrest me that I know is going to happen, and I know I'm going to have to be sacrificed, and I know I'm going to have to bear the weight of everybody's sin that ever happened and ever will happen. And I start sweating great drops of blood. Now, we're thankful because we have a doctor who writes one of the Gospels, Luke. He's the one that tells us he sweat like great great drops of blood. It's important to Luke, not the other Gospel writers, to make sure that we know that physical condition that Jesus was in. So who's coming for Jesus? Well, in the various translations, it's either a crowd, a band, a great multitude, a great crowd, a large crowd, They're carrying torches, swords, clubs. The Greek word that's that's used for detachment in our English Bibles was traditionally used or often used to define to distinguish a Roman military unit. Now a Roman military unit would have been about four hundred and eighty Roman soldiers. Now here's one of those things where we have to say All right, could it have been Roman soldiers or was it someone else? It seems to me that even though the Greek word referred to Roman soldiers, it's unlikely that this arrest force was Roman. And for a couple of reasons. Number one, detachment wasn't exclusively used to to describe a Roman military unit. It was also used to describe other military units. 
the Jewish authorities had a temple police guard. Roman soldiers were unlikely to bring a prisoner to the Jewish high priest if they had had a warrant ahead of time. So I think, and if you look through the Gospels, they're very clear that the chief priests and elders had brought a, a, this great multitude with them that, that it's more, more than likely the Jewish authorities who had the authority to arrest and to convict people but not put anybody to death, which we'll see in a minute. So how many were there? I've seen various estimations of upwards of 1,000 people. Upwards of 1,000 soldiers coming to arrest one man. And we see a hint of that when we look at what Jesus said when they arrive. In Mark 14, 48, Judas betrays Jesus with the kiss, and Jesus' reaction to the crowd that's come for him, it says, Am I leading a rebellion? That you have come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts, and you did not arrest me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. That's Mark 14, 48. His reaction, am I leading a rebellion, would make sense if there's a thousand people or a couple hundred people coming with, with swords and, and torches. That would be my reaction. Like, well, oh, geez, I didn't think you got the wrong guy. Like, I might have, you might have, want to arrest me, but you don't need this many people. Unless, of course, I'm, I am leading a rebellion. And the Romans had already seen him come into the city and have all the, the people around him and nothing happened. There was no revolt. Nobody tried to throw, overthrow Rome. Romans wouldn't be all that interested in a single arrest. The temple police would be. And it's strange to us to think that there would have been hundreds of officers coming to arrest Jesus. Today, we would think you just need a squad of people, squad of officers going to arrest somebody who's got an arrest warrant. You know, you don't send an entire military division to pick up somebody who's got a shoplifting warrant, right? You, you would think that it wouldn't make sense, but we see a hint in Jesus' own words, that this actually was hundreds of people coming to make that arrest. We're not even out of the garden yet. What happens? Judas betrays Jesus with the kiss. That's the sign. For 30 pieces of silver, he kisses Jesus. We jump over to John now, and John asks, who have you come for? He wants to say, or he, what he wants to do is make clear that they've come for him alone and not his disciples, who hopefully have awoken by now in all the commotion. So he wants to make sure that you want me. And they say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus' answer is, I am he. And they all fall down. Can you imagine what that must have been like? And if I were on that arrest squad, that would have been it for me. He doesn't say, I am Jesus of Nazareth. I'm, I think I'm the one you want. Here's my ID. He says, I am he, and they all fall down. We're at the moment of confrontation now, and like I said, this is where I like Peter. I don't like the denial in the rooster story, but I like when he cuts off the ear. Right? You're not coming for my Lord today. So he cuts off the ear, and we go back to Luke, our doctor friend, and he tells us, not only does he say, put away your sword, those who will live by the sword will die by the sword. He tells us, Luke does, that Jesus heals the ear. He's about to be arrested. He knows what's coming, and in the middle of all of it, not only does he have to teach a lesson to Peter, 
he's got to do one more miracle for someone who's coming to arrest him, and he heals the high priest's servant's ear, who, by the way, we know his name is Malchus because John tells us his name is Malchus. Only John mentions that it was Peter who cut off the ear. The other Gospels just say there was someone standing nearby and they cut him off. So we would say, well, how come John says it defines it as Peter and the rest don't? Well, if we think that John is the last Gospel written, maybe around 90 A.D., and the others were written much more closely, closer to the time of, of Jesus' execution, in the time period where the early Christians are being persecuted, it may not have been safe to name Peter as the one who cut off the ear. But 40 years later, Peter's now been martyred, and the Christians are not being chased around by Paul everywhere. Well, maybe it's now safer that we can mention Peter was the one who cut off the ear, and as opposed to some person that we have to think, who could this have been? Was it one of the disciples? Was it somebody else? We know for sure it's a historical fact. Peter was the one who did that. Although Jesus didn't need him to, of course. So Jesus makes sure, you want me, not these others. And their reaction being the grateful disciples that they are, they all fall away. They abandon Jesus at the moment that he is taken into custody. Having your disciples fall away back in that culture at that time would be very shameful. It's shameful to have your followers and your closest disciples abandon you. It appears that they have lost faith and lost trust in their leader. As we close the drama in the, in the garden, Jesus is bound and taken away. We know he's taken to Annas first because that's what John tells us. We'll have to be in John for a few minutes to get the story about Annas. But as an aside, I mentioned before, the Jewish authorities did have the power to make arrests and to hold trials. Uh, we see that sometimes they overstepped their bounds. They put to death Stephen, right? And they put to death, uh, and we see in Acts, uh, the death of Stephen, and we see the death of James, the, the son of Zebedee there. Uh, so sometimes they do overstep their bounds. But in this case, they're going to try to give the veneer of legality. And because the Romans had taken away the authority to execute a death sentence from the Jewish authorities, they're going to try to have to go to Pilate and get a so-called legal uh, sentence. They bring him to Annas. And one of the, the troubles we sometimes see in the Gospel accounts is that both Annas and Caiaphas are referred to as the high priest. Jesus is going to appear before both. He's going to ultimately have six trials. Annas, Caiaphas, the Sanhedrin, Pilate one, Herod, and then Pilate two. So six times he's going to be confronted with the accusations. We're only at the first trial now before Annas. John tells us it's Annas. Annas was the high priest, uh, not officially and not according to the Romans. Annas was the high priest until six a, or in 6 AD, he was appointed high priest, and then in 15 AD, he was deposed and replaced uh, by one of his sons who was there for a short time, and then Caiaphas, who we'll see in just a minute. He goes to Annas. Annas asks him a few questions. Jesus doesn't answer, and he's sent off to Caiaphas, who is the official high priest rec recognized by Rome. So why is he even at Annas, we would ask? Well, back then, seniority in, in the Jewish culture was very important. So Annas being the, 
the former high priest, he would retain that title according to the Jews, although the Romans didn't recognize him. So perhaps they were just going to Annas to get, their, get his blessing as they continue on in this sort of trial process. His opinion would have carried weight. Uh, he should have been high priest for life, but the Romans, they sort of replaced high priests at will uh, because they were the power at the time. He, Annas asks about Jesus' disciples and his, teaches, his teachings. He tells them, uh, you know, listen, I've been teaching in your temple and your synagogues this whole time, and I have said nothing in private that I didn't say in public. So you can ask others what my teachings are. Well, apparently that was rather disrespectful according to one of the, standard, the people standing nearby. So he slaps Jesus and said, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus says nothing. He doesn't answer to hotheads. He doesn't answer to Annas. He doesn't answer to human authorities. So Annas sends him off to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, the official Roman-recognized high priest at this time. He's still bound. Jesus hasn't been released. He's not on parole. He's, he's in custody. Caiaphas was high priest from 18 to 36, he was the longest-serving high priest at this time, uh, indicating that he was probably very politically astute. He was able to keep his office and not be deposed by the Romans for that whole time. Typically, they lasted a much shorter tenure. And we have to know something about Caiaphas before Jesus shows up to face him and the Sanhedrin that are gathering in the middle of the night. It's Caiaphas who, in John 11, 49, and 50, when the Sanhedrin are discussing what to do about Jesus, it's Caiaphas is the one who says, Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He's the judge. Completely unbiased judge who's now going to talk to Jesus about his teaching and whether or not he's the Messiah. So we're going to try to have this trial with a biased judge in Caiaphas's home, which also was against the legal proceedings recognized by the Jews. It was supposed to be held in the daytime, in the courts, not in the high priest's home. The Sanhedrin are gathered now, and they can't find any witnesses, although they specifically are looking for false witnesses. They still can't find witnesses to agree on what the accusations are. And finally, two do come forward and agree. And that's the legal requirement that's met. According to Jewish law, you have to have two witnesses that agree. And as soon as that happens, Caiaphas jumps up. He's not supposed to. He's supposed to be the neutral judge overseeing the proceedings. But he jumps up and now he takes a hand in it. He starts asking Jesus questions. What do you say about these accusations? Do you have nothing to say? And Jesus doesn't answer. And then Caiaphas does something that's curious. We'll jump over to Matthew 26, 63 and 64 here. Jesus is being questioned by Caiaphas. Do you remain silent in the face of these accusations? Matthew 26, 63, 64. 
But Jesus remained silent. The high priest, Caiaphas, said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. At that, Caiaphas yells, Blasphemy and tears his clothes. Now, two points here. First, critics will say that, you know, when Jesus answers this, he never said he was God. He never says specifically that he was God. But why on earth would Caiaphas jump up and yell blasphemy if that's not what Jesus said? Why would they continue this if Jesus didn't say and claim to be the Son of God? Critics would like to twist that whole uh, incident into something that it's not. He very clearly is saying he is the Messiah. And I find it interesting also that Jesus remains silent in the face of any questioning from human authorities until Caiaphas puts him under oath to God, at which point Jesus answers. Is there a lesson in there for us? Who are we answering to? Who do we answer to? The verdict is unanimous now. He's guilty. And here's where we find our first, what I call, the throwaway passages. They don't really make any sense. Uh, we have in Matthew 26, 67, the guards already spit in his face, punched him, and they're starting to abuse Jesus, and they say, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Which doesn't make any sense. If somebody strikes you, you should be able to tell who that person is. Jesus hasn't lost consciousness yet. But over in Mark 1465, we read that Jesus had been blindfolded by this point. And so it's not that they're asking Jesus to uh, identify who his assailant is. They're mocking him. And they're trying to get him to perform yet another miracle to be able to say while blindfolded who it was that hit him. They're mocking. Not really asking or trying to get to the truth of the matter. We're getting towards dawn now. And you're not supposed to have any trials at night. So the Sanhedrin are going to gather again, according to Luke, right at daybreak to put an official legal stamp on this proceeding. The legal verdict will have to come in daylight, and of course the Sanhedrin do that. And we should maybe pause here for just a second. Because after the verdict, we're going to head on over to Pilate and the Gentile rulers. But let's pause here and just take a second. We're starting to see the physical abuse that Jesus is going to have to suffer. Now, he's been up all night. He's been arrested. He's been slapped, spit in his face, punched. We're just starting to get a hint of what's to come. Emotionally, if I ever was so anxious that I sweat drops of blood, I would be taking a nap by now. There's no way I would still be on my feet. We've all been through emotionally uh, difficult uh, things, and it takes a lot out of you. And yet, here we are at daybreak. Jesus is still standing. And we're starting to see the injustice of it all. A biased judge, not following legal precedent, due process rights that we enjoy here in America, they're not happening. So we're going to go over to Pilate, and I'm going to have to go mostly to John and Luke here. Because when Pilate first sees him, he says, why are you bringing him to me? What are the charges? 
kind of indicates that the Romans had no idea that this was coming. If a Roman detachment had been sent to make this arrest, certainly Pilate would already know what the deal was. But he, his initial reaction to Jesus being brought to him is, why'd you bring him here? What are your charges? And in John we see, the Jewish elders tell him, well, if he weren't a criminal, we wouldn't have brought him here. What kind of accusation is that? If he, if he wasn't a criminal, we would have just never brought him here. Over in Luke, the accusation is that he stirs up the people. He refuses to, or he tell, advises the people not to pay their taxes, and then he claims to be a king. Now, none of that is what Annas or Caiaphas was asking him about. But they need this verdict from Rome to put him to death. So they sort of manipulate the charge. Not that he's the Messiah. Romans don't care. They have dozens of gods. They don't care if he's the Messiah or not. There's, there were plenty of Messiahs that they frequently put down and had killed. But this Messiah is what the Jews are interested in, but they're not going to get a verdict from Rome, so they start talking about taxes and him claiming to be a king. They spent all night trying to develop charges, and then when they go to Pilate, they have something completely different. Now we see Pilate, he spends a lot of time trying to get this thorny situation off of his plate. Roman authorities could often bump down cases to lower courts. And in this particular case, we have to kind of understand what the political situation was. Herod Antipas, who we're going to see in a, in a few minutes, he's the so-called king over the area of Galilee. He's the son of uh, King Herod in the birth narrative. Uh, but we haven't got to him yet. We just have to understand that Pilate does have the authority to bump this case down to Herod as a sort of a lower court. He tries to dismiss the case right away. John 18.31 tells us that Pilate says, take him yourself and judge him by your own laws. Again, he doesn't care if he's the Messiah. In Luke 23.4, he specifically says, I find no basis for a charge against this man. And we see in John the, the Jewish leaders object right away. And they say, we have no right to execute anyone, therefore giving up the farce that this is. Pilate's political pickle that he's in is that he's got someone who's not committed anything against Roman law, but he's got a local populace that's in an uproar. He not only has to make sure that the legal proceedings are followed correctly, but he also has to make sure his local population doesn't uh, start a rebellion against him. So he's, he's got this pickle. He looks for a way out. He hears that Jesus is from Galilee, and so he says, ah, Herod is here. I'm going to send him over to Herod. He goes to Herod. This sort of split authority with, with Herod being the king or the tetrarch of Galilee, Pilate being the governor, the Roman authority in the same area. Herod isn't really interested in having a trial. He just wants to see a miracle. That's very clear in the Bibles. And even though the chief priests and the, and the teachers of the law are there, what we see is vehemently accusing Jesus. Herod just wants to see a miracle. And when he doesn't get one, this, this person who's supposedly been in his area, he may be the only one who hasn't seen a miracle yet. Jesus won't answer any of these accusations. Again, he remains silent in the face of civilian or human authority. And so they dress him in some elegant robes and they send him back to Pilate. We find another curious passage here. 
in Luke 23, 12. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends before they were enemies. Hmm. Well, if we don't know anything about the, the history of Rome or Herod or Pilate or anybody, this, again, seems like uh, just kind of a, an addendum to the gospel. Like, Why are they even saying this? Well, Herod wasn't Jewish, but he was, did have authority over that land, and Pilate was often in conflict with the Jews. Pilate had minted coins with images on them, which were offensive to the Jews. Uh, he used money from the temple treasury to build an aqueduct, which he wasn't supposed to do, but it's hard to believe that he would have been able to do it without some uh, cooperation with the Jewish authorities. But that came to be a point of contention. He brought golden shields to Caesarea. Now, now Pilate, the Roman headquarters in Jerusalem at this time was in Caesarea, not actually Jerusalem. He's only in Jerusalem because it's the festival and he's making an appearance there. Caesarea is where their headquarters were and he brought golden shields with the image of Caesar on it into Caesarea and that became a problem. Pilate was the governor at the time uh, of the slaughter of the Galileans in, that we read about in Luke 13 that Jesus makes reference to. And then finally, Pilate takes the images off the golden shields, so they don't have any more images on them, but he puts the golden shields in Herod's temple, which also insults the Jewish people. And it leads to an uproar, and Herod formally sending a letter of protest over to the emperor in Rome, who sends a letter back ordering Pilate to remove the shields from Herod's temple. Certainly an embarrassment to the Roman authority who wants to show who's in charge. So by sending Jesus down to the lower court and allowing Herod to have his chance, Pilate is sort of showing some deference to Herod, who would have appreciated being recognized as an authority along with Pilate. So maybe the reason we have this throwaway line where Herod and Pilate became friends, where before they were enemies, it could be because this was the start of a warming of their relationship, both being political powers in that area. And after this happens, they'll both be in office for another three to six years, depending upon how you read the dates. So it could be that for the next following three years, these two have been really good friends, close political allies, and everybody knew that, which is why this passage gets in Luke's gospel. Just an explanation of why these two, who used to be enemies, we're now friends. Just as an aside, if you're interested, how long did Pilate stay governor of, of the area in, in uh, Jerusalem? It was only until 36 AD. He was governor from 26 to 36. In 36, he had a confrontation with some Samaritans, which led to a massacre in that area, and then he was ultimately recalled to go face charges before his emperor. While he was on the way, his emperor died, so it's likely that his uh, case was dismissed, the new emperor would probably be unlikely in dealing with it. But he never comes back. He doesn't regain his position. Uh, there's all sorts of rumors. Some people believe he committed suicide. I've read other accounts where he actually becomes a Christian, and the Ethiopian church, as I understand it, actually venerates him as a saint, he and his wife. I don't know if any of that's true. I just know that that's some of the commentary that I've read. Uh, but it seems most likely that he just faded into retired government service uh, on back to his farm somewhere in Italy. 
Herod has a dispute with Rome in 39 AD. He gets exiled to Spain, and then you never hear from him again. In any event, back to our story. Herod sends him back to Pilate. Now we're at Pilate number two. We're at the sixth trial, but second before Pilate. We're coming to the end. Pilate calls back the Jewish leaders and again tries to release him. But they object. John 19, 12. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free. But the Jewish leaders kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king is no friend of Caesar. No mention of being the Messiah. No mention of blasphemy. We need this man executed. He is no friend of Caesar. He's an insurrectionist. And that certainly would get you killed by the Romans. Jesus won't answer the charges yet again until Pilate starts asking him about who he is. And then we end up with that famous line of Pilate's, what is truth? Pilate's still trying to find a way to get rid of this, so he offers to have him punished, flogged, and released. That's no good. He needs another political solution, and he hits on, hey, you know, usually I, there's a custom where I release another prisoner to the population. Barabbas happens to be standing nearby. He calls Barabbas and says, which one do you want, the king of the Jews or this criminal, robber, murderer, insurrectionist? And of course, we choose Barabbas. He's tried to appease the Jews. He's tried to have Herod deal with this. He's tried to figure out the truth. He can't. And finally, we get the image of Pilate just throwing his hands up and saying in Matthew 27, 24, when Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere, but that instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. It is your responsibility. Of course, a leader is never absolved of their responsibility just because they're compelled to by the crowd. Nevertheless, Pilate hands Jesus over to a squad of executioners, men who know how to crucify somebody. We see as after he's been scourged yet again, not with just a regular whip, a whip with pieces of bone and glass and stone on the end, ripping apart his back. Now he needs to start his journey to Golgotha. We meet Simon of Cyrene. This poor man is 1,100 miles from home, and he's pressed into service. Now the soldiers might have been acting legally here. In Roman law, Roman citizens and Roman soldiers could press people into service. And that's where we see in Matthew 5:41, we talk about going the extra mile. One mile was the distance that the Romans were allowed to impress somebody to carry their bag. And Jesus says, well, just go one mile and then go two. So they could, they, they may have been acting legally here when they press Simon of Cyrene into service. Another interesting throwaway quote here. We see a certain, in Mark 15, 21, I'm at, a certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by in his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now, it's interesting to me because usually in the Bible and many ancient texts, you, people are referred to as son of so-and-so. Rarely do we see father of so-and-so. And why that would be important to us is we can only speculate, but in Romans 16, 13, Paul's closing his letters and he writes, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. It could be that as a result of being pressed into service, Simon and his family 
become Christians. And Rufus, now in Rome, apparently, has become a leader in the Christian church. It's interesting to put those two things together. Obviously, there's no, he's not saying specifically that is Simon's son, but it's interesting why this line Mark would throw in during the narrative of his journey to the cross, and then we see Rufus later on in the letter of Romans. Just something for us to think of. It's not far from the place where Jesus is condemned to where he gets to, where he's going to be hung on the cross. The place of the skull, or Golgotha as it's called, even the sign above his head provokes the Jews. Pilate writes, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews, and the, the Jewish authorities go back to Pilate and say, wait a minute, why don't you say he claimed to be the king of the Jews? And Pilate just says, I've had enough of this. I've written what I've written, and it stays. The disciples have abandoned him. He's been nailed to the cross and raised up. Only John remains at the scene with Mary. He's been beaten and mocked. He's suffering a criminal's fate. And amidst this suffering, what does Jesus say? What's on his mind in the middle of all this? We know, because in Luke 23, 43, Jesus says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. I can't do that. If I had suffered an unjust trial and was hung from a cross as a criminal unjustly, innocently, there's no way I would be thinking, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You know that he's crucified with two others, the thief on the cross. We get a glimpse of the depths of forgiveness, the promise that he'll be in paradise with Jesus that day. At the moment of death, Jesus is still forgiving a single sinner who has no time to make good, no time to go to church, no time to be a witness for him, no time to be baptized. Jesus is still forgiving him, moments away from death. Taking the four Gospels together, we see Jesus says seven things while he's hanging on the cross. And if you're still with me, I'd invite you to open up your Bibles or your, your apps. If you're not thinking about what you're going to do this afternoon yet or making your grocery list, perhaps we can all get back to that moment in time. And we turn to Matthew 27, 46. If your Bible has red letters, it'll have this in red letters. I'm going to re read the King James Version. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We will never be able to relate to this saying. We know Jesus will never abandon us. But hanging on the cross, the truth of the, of the situation is that Jesus has to ask, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Shortly thereafter, we see in Luke 23, 46. Luke 23, 46. And when Jesus had cried in a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. 
and having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Let's turn our attention to the cross. Jesus has been betrayed with a kiss. The detachment of hundreds of men comes to make the arrest. The moment of confrontation, he says, put away your sword. He heals the ear. He suffers abuse, accusation, and confrontation. He's faced a biased judge, illegal proceedings, a nighttime trial and verdict, violation of ethical and legal norms. He's been abandoned by his closest followers. Are the Jewish leaders responsible? Sure. Is Pilate to blame? No doubt. But if we look at that cross, the reason that he's there is for my sin. We're at the moment, the darkest moment in human history, right now. The moment, the death of our Lord and Savior. In complete obedience to God, Jesus is hanging from a cross right into the moment where he gives the only thing that he has left to give. Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. Do we have a closing song? As the the worship team comes up, let's just stay here for a minute. Stay in this moment of deepest despair where for just one moment we can feel one speck of the shame, suffering, and betrayal that Jesus did on the cross. That he's experiencing in his final moments, knowing that he's borne everything, every sin, in complete obedience to his Father's plan. But just as we hit rock bottom, we realize Sunday morning's going to come. Joy does, in fact, come in the morning on the third day. We know Easter morning is near. We know the tomb will be empty. And that we had to go from arrest to death to get to the glorious resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the end, Jesus wins.